Greetings in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I am Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri, and it's a pleasure to have you with us for our Pastor's Bible Class. Whether you are joining us uh, locally here on 850 AM KFUO radio station, or whether you are joining us worldwide, kfuo.org, again, it's a pleasure to have you with us. As we ordinarily do in this class, we'll be taking a look at the assigned scripture lessons for the coming Sunday. So in this case, it would be Sunday, June 21, 2020. And we'll be looking, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson that's assigned, Jeremiah 20, verses 7 through 13. I'm going to then skip uh, to the Gospel lesson, which is Matthew 10, uh, verse 5a, and then 21 through 33. And then we'll end by going back to the Epistle lesson, Romans 6, 12 through 23. Before we do that, however, let's begin with the word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we continue to come before you with thanksgiving and praise for all your blessings to us, but especially those blessings that come to us through your risen and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we have forgiveness and everlasting life, and we are privileged to be able to share that good news with all whom we encounter. We thank you also for your word, your revealed knowledge to us concerning yourself and all things. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us and guide us as we consider that word today. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our only Savior. Amen. Well, as is often the case, we're going to see uh, in both our Old Testament and our Gospel lesson a common thread or a common theme that runs through both of them. And I think I would summarize that common theme along the lines of the, the opposition of the sinful world to the true Word of God. Whether that is the proclamation of Jeremiah in the Old Testament lesson, or whether it is the proclamation of Christ in the Gospel lesson. There is certainly danger for those who prescribe it, as we see, we'll see in the case of Jeremiah and the disciples who are sent out, and there is opposition uh, to what they proclaim. Uh, first of all, let's take a look at Jeremiah, and we pick up in verse 7, but there's been a significant and very relevant uh, connected event taking place right before verse 7. And this is the, the leader <clears throat> who is the chief officer in the house of the Lord. Um, the, in other words, the, the chief officer in the, in the temple named Pashur. And he overhears the truth that Jeremiah is proclaiming has Jeremiah beaten and put in stocks overnight, and then has him released the next day. But uh, Jeremiah does not back down at all, even after being beaten and placed in stocks overnight. He continues the proclamation of the word and says, that, uh, the, and, and says to Pashur, The Lord does not call your name Pashur, but terror on every side. And that's actually a word play in Hebrew. And he is going to, now this, this Pashur is going to be the embodiment of the destruction and the judgment 
that God is going to bring down upon his people as the Babylonians are going to come uh, and be the arm of God's judgment upon the sin and unbelief and idolatry of his own people, uh, toppling God's people finally in 586 B.C., although there were uh, even deportations prior to that uh, for 20 or 30 years uh, at least. And God, God, many of God's people are going to be carried away in exile as well. It's, it's important to remember that back at this time, when it came to God's people, church and state were really one and the same. And so if you were a prophet like Jeremiah, and you were proclaiming judgment and doom and gloom is coming, uh, you were almost seen as being treasonous, uh, that, that you were speaking against uh, the state and against uh, God's uh, rule. And, of course, there were also plenty of other prophets who were telling the leaders back in those days exactly what they wanted to hear. Uh, they were the paid prophets. And so the real prophets of God, like Jeremiah, uh, were seen to be pretty much just crazy, just, just off their rocker, preaching doom and gloom uh, when, when there, in many cases, was prosperity um, at that time. So this is kind of what Jeremiah is, is up against he has just had this happen to him, being beaten and put in stocks. And this section that we have, verses 7 through uh, 13, is a very emotional section here. And it's one of what are called six different confessions uh, that or emotional um, interactions between Jeremiah and God that we have in the book of Jeremiah. And so... Let's uh, get into starting at verse uh, 7 here with this as background now. And a very interesting statement in verse 7. This again, remember, this is Jeremiah talking to God. O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. Uh, sort of uh, that word deceived, I don't quite care for that translation um, it also means to be enticed. You enticed me. In other words, Lord, you enticed me to be a prophet. And in other words, he's almost saying to himself, what have I gotten myself into? And you almost hear some echoes of when Moses is just at his wit's end and says, you know, in effect, that I did not give birth to all these people. How is it that you've laid them, all of them on my shoulders? And it's the same sort of thing. Uh, Lord, you enticed me into this, and I was enticed. You are stronger than I, and you prevailed. And in other words, here I am, and um, you know you have you have had your way with me, and here I am in this in this predicament. He goes on to say, "I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. Um, so in other words, I've, I've become a joke uh, all the day, and everyone mocks me. You can almost." Uh, you know, hear the the derision and the snide comments that others would be making about Jeremiah. You know, here comes doom and gloom on every side. Here comes terror on every side again. Let's hear what he has to say today. And you know, just in a in a mocking sort of belittling uh, uh, sort of a, an approach. Uh, so that's verse seven. Verse eight. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. 
And of course, that again is true. That is exactly what is going to happen. He's calling for his pe- God's people to repent, or else violence and destruction is coming. For, he says, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. He is, you might say, between a rock and a hard place here. He is proclaiming the word of God, which is the true word of God, but it is, he has, he has just become, as he says there, a derision to him. He's being derided for preaching the truth of God's word. And unfortunately, uh, there have certainly been times throughout the history of the church, and there have certainly been times in congregations where, unfortunately, pastors find themselves in this sort of a situation, or maybe it's an entire congregation that is proclaiming the truth of God's word in the midst of others who are saying, oh, come on, uh, what, are, what, what are you babbling? What are you saying here? And I think of especially some of the... Uh, social uh, things in our culture today uh, that are seen by our culture as being acceptable and fine and in fact even promoted in many circles of our culture and um, either uh, and pastors and congregations um, not joining in with the cultural tidal wave in fact standing up against it and pointing out how these things are not pleasing in the sight of God not just because we think so, but because God's word clearly speaks on those, uh, on those items. So it's much the same situation, I think, that Jeremiah found himself in. The word of God has actually become a deriding point now, um, easily used by people to mock him, to make fun of him, to make him into a joke, as he says. Verse uh, 9, If I say, I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So, if if Jeremiah says to himself, well, okay, I'm just not going to say anything uh, in terms of the word of God, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut, it'll be much easier, it'll be much more comfortable, yet he says, I just cannot do it. Um, he says, it, it's as if my heart was a burning fire. Uh, you almost get the, I, I was thinking almost of the analogy of a pressure cooker here, that, you know, the, the pressure just continues to rise. He cannot hold it in. He is compelled, we might say, to proclaim the word of God. Um, it was uh, certainly his, we think of uh, his call, Jeremiah's call back in chapter 1, and remember, uh, he, he did not want to do this. Uh, he said he was too young. He said that he was not a good speaker. But again, God would have none of that. God called him and told him exactly where he's going to go, and frankly, that it was not going to be pleasant. It was not going to be uh, all uh, comfort, ease, and glory, just the opposite. And so now we see Jeremiah you know, on the other side of this now, as he is experiencing the hardship of being a prophet of God due to the reaction that God's word is receiving. And uh, now we see him, though, saying that he simply cannot stop from speaking. He, he is compelled to speak out. He cannot hold it in. Verse uh, 10, For I hear many whispering, terror is on every side. Now remember, 
the new name of Peshur uh, was exactly that, terror on every side. That's what Jeremiah renamed him. And so you wonder here, Jeremiah says, I hear many whispering terrors on every side. You know, this again might be just a uh, derision kind of sarcastically saying, you know, here's terror on every side again, and sort of whispering it under their breath, again, to mock him, to humiliate him, embarrass him. Uh, Denounce him, let us denounce him, say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Uh, The the word denounce can also be translated report, uh, report him. Um, Again, remember that, as what I said before about um, this being uh, almost seen in that in that day as an act of treason, if you were saying anything negative about um, the, the ruler, and uh, therefore by extension, you were thought to be um, uh, treasonous. Uh, and notice who's doing this. It's even his his close friends. Um, close friends can be translated also men of peace. In other words, those men with whom he is at peace, even they are turning him over, are betraying him, wanting to report him. Uh, going on, perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him, or we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. Huh. You think of revenge for what? For proclaiming the word of God. Uh, they, they want revenge on him because he's not going along with a party line. He's not saying everything's going to be just fine. Don't worry about a thing. In fact, just the opposite. Um, now, verse 11, we, we hit a big turning point here. We've had, so far from uh, 7 through 10, we've had, I guess you might just say, uh, verse after verse of, of Jeremiah just pouring his heart out to God. And... Um, in in a sense, complaining about uh, the state of affairs and things that are happening, things he's facing, the public derision that he is facing. And now, though, notice what's going to happen in verse 11. He, might say, takes his eyes off of himself and places them on the Lord. And all of a sudden, uh, it's no longer about him but he takes his confidence, he takes his strength in the fact that it's not just Jeremiah out there proclaiming. God is with him, and it is God's word that he is proclaiming. So starting with verse 11, But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Uh, the word dread it can also be translated ruthless. So the Lord is with me as a ruthless warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. Notice here again, the reason for his confidence is the presence of the Lord with him and knowing that the Lord will stand, not only stand with him, but will give him the words and give him the strength and the courage that is needed. You know, it's much the same. It's that wonderful presence of God and, uh, Uh, Thanks be to God that we have a God who delights in being with his people. Even in the wilderness, uh, he was there as a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night. And we see when the temple is dedicated uh, in Jerusalem, his glory comes and fills that temple with a a cloud 
of, uh, of great smoke. And then, of course, ultimately coming here incarnate to be with us, to, to tabernacle with us uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that presence of God with us that gives us the strength and the courage. Um, we think of Jesus, for example, in the Great Commission saying to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It again is that, that promise, not just the promise, but the actual presence itself. Uh, of God with us, whether we're talking here in Jeremiah's day or in Christ's day or in our day here today. And so that is why Jeremiah uh, puts an end to his pity party, you might say, in, in verses 7 through 10, and now is back encouraged once again. Speaking about his enemies, he goes on to say, they will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. And, you know, just thinking back, um, Jesus, you know, talked about how their, their forefathers, you know, killed and stoned the prophets, and you really see this happening. Uh, it is unbelievable the way the so-called people of God turn on those who down through the ages have been proclaiming the word of God to them, even to the point of, of great physical harm and even death being brought to them. Uh, it's an eternal dishonor that will never be forgotten. Then in verse 12, again, Jeremiah, O Lord of hosts, Lord of Sabaoth, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. So he takes comfort here, you might say, who sees, you might call it the omniscience of God, the all-knowing power of God, who, who sees the heart and the mind. In other words, it's another way of Jeremiah saying to God, I know that you see my heart and you know my mind, that I am with you and not with them, that I proclaim the truth to them and not the lies that they spew. And to you I have committed my cause. And then finally, a great way to end. Um, at last, the final verse here, verse 13. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. And just to finish out what's going to be happening here, God will bring about the judgment that Jeremiah has predicted in verses 1 through 6 of this chapter, and the Babylonians will come and take God's people captive, but God will work with a faithful remnant that he will bring back. They will rebuild Jerusalem. They will rebuild the temple, and it's through that faithful remnant that God will be faithful to his promise to bring forth one who will crush the head of Satan, just as he promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, and so, again, the truth of God's word over and against the, um, you might say, the derision, the um, total opposition of those who simply don't want to hear the truth of God's word, 
they think it's wrong. They think they're the ones who are right. They think uh, it is uh, going to go just as they think it's going to go. And, of course, that is a, as I mentioned before, that is a, a problem the church has faced down through the ages. Uh, the truth of God's word versus the, you might say, cultural interpretation of how things are going, uh, how life is going, and the two not being one and the same. And it is the mission of the church, when such things occur, to obviously just be proclaiming the truth of God's word in its purity, not what might be easily spoken or easily said, just to blend in with culture, but to keep God's word in all of its truth and purity, both in our hearts and in our confession and proclamation. With that then, let's move to the gospel lesson. I mentioned that here also we are going to see uh, a common theme of there being this opposition to what is going to be proclaimed, in this case, by the disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, we get Jesus sending out the 12 disciples. And it's interesting that in verse 5, he sends them and specifically says to them that go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. So Jesus has narrowed uh, quite a bit, actually, their mission focus. They are to be going only to the Jews, the house of Israel, God's people living in Galilee, and that is the scope of their mission. In the first four verses of Matthew chapter 10, uh, we'll just read here that we have the disciples named, um, and he, Jesus, of course, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And then the names of the twelve disciples are, are given. So Jesus is sending them out here with authority uh, over demons, over diseases, and they are going to uh, do great signs and wonders, of course, uh, which would be calling attention not only to them, but more, much more importantly to the message, uh, to the words that they would be proclaiming. Now, we have a, a big, we skip a lot of verses here and go down to verse 21. And here Jesus lets them know that um, things are not going to be, again, comfortable and easy and plush for them in the same way that God let Jeremiah know that when he called Jeremiah. Let me just read for you verses 21 through 23. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." Jesus here giving them uh, what we might call a reality check of what it's going to be like for those who proclaim the gospel. Not only for them going out, but it is going to be this way down through the entire New Testament era, the era we are in right now. Uh, the message of the gospel will result in them, as Jesus says, being hated 
absolutely hated for his name's sake. And tradition outside of the scriptures uh, says that in the case of every one of these except one of these disciples, they in fact were put to death as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ and their flat-out refusal uh, to stop preaching about Christ. And that would include, of course, Paul, who comes later, is not in this group yet, but is made an apostle on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But he would be included in this, uh, in this kind of a prediction itself. And notice there that it even transcends family lines. Uh, that uh, brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, imagine that. Uh, children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Um, this, the, the evil that uh, Satan brings about and, and operates in, with, and under is just an incredible an incredible thing, incredibly destructive thing, even crossing over family lines. And unfortunately, this is the way we in this country, of course, uh, have a relatively comfortable existence. We may face opposition verbally. We may face other attempts to um, hinder our, our success, hinder the mission. But there are certainly, most certainly, places on the face of this earth right now where there is a threat to the even physical threat uh, to people who are proclaiming Jesus Christ or believing in Jesus Christ. We uh, should not kid ourselves. Those places have always, it seems, existed in the world. They exist uh, to this day and unfortunately will likely exist all the way to the time when Christ returns to judge between the living and the dead. That, uh, that last phrase there that I wanted to speak just a word about um, I say to you, Jesus says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's been a lot written on that exactly when is Jesus talking about, when he says, until the Son of Man comes, or before the Son of Man comes. I, I'm in agreement with, uh, I think, a lot of scholars that say that he's probably not here talking about the second coming, when he comes back in power and glory to judge between the living and the dead. But actually, when he comes in judgment of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, using this time not the Babylonians, but the Romans, uh, to come and actually absolutely uh, destroy um, God's people and, uh, and Jerusalem and, and so on. So we kind of think that's what's going to happen. Notice uh, Jesus in verse uh, 23 uh, it does not say if they persecute you in one town. He says when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Um, you know, it, it's again, it's an, it's the expectation that this kind of persecution will take place. This opposition to the message of the gospel that there is that Jesus is in fact the long-awaited Messiah, and there is forgiveness and there is life through Him. Now, we go on to probably the starting of an entire, uh, entirely new section here. And starting in verse 24, I want to read verse 24, and I'll read verse 25 also. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more? 
uh, will they malign those of his household? Well, if we were to summarize this, this paragraph in, in just a few words, that you might say something along the lines of the servants or the students um, shouldn't expect any better treatment than the master receives. You know, if the master is being treated this way, uh, you better expect that the students and the servants will uh, as well. You know, if the disciple is not above his teacher, of course not. Um, they are not independent individuals, though. They are his disciples, so there is a connection to him. And the same hatred that uh, many have expressed toward Jesus Christ is then also, um, by connection, by that connection, transferred also to his students, to his disciples. Um, and, of course, we know that at least in more than one occasion, actually, Jesus was was accused of operating as the agent of the devil. He says here, if they if called the master of the house Beelzebul, uh, that was uh, um, a false fertility, a reference to false, the false fertility god Baal, uh, in the Old Testament, Baal is prince, and it became, uh, over time, a way to um, refer to rulers of demons or, you know, someone who became uh, really a name for Satan or being an agent of Satan, Beelzebul. And so, um, on more than one occasion, Jesus was, uh, they, they were trying to explain, you know, chief priests, scribes, elders, uh, trying to explain how Jesus is doing all of this. How is he performing all these miracles? How is he making all this happen? And their one conclusion, obviously completely false, is that he's actually an agent of Satan. He's not from God, he's from Satan. And so again, uh, they would, they would, they've maligned Jesus in that way. They're certainly going to malign his followers in that very same way. And of course they did. I mentioned before, I should have finished off, that uh, I think I mentioned that all but one of the disciples uh, died as a martyr. That one who did not, we believe, is the disciple John, of course, who uh, it seems was quite young at the time that Jesus uh, called him. And of course John, though, was exiled to the island of Patmos, and then uh, tradition has it that he returned and lived out the rest of his years in Ephesus. Um, sort of the uh, elder statesman, fatherly figure of the, of the early Christian church as the first century drew to a close. And we, it, it appears also, according to tradition, that he uh, was faithful to the command that Christ gave him from the cross to care for Mary and that, uh, again, tradition has it that that's exactly what he did in the years that, uh, that he had left. But the rest of them all died a martyr's death, we believe, uh, as a result of their proclamation of the gospel. So Jesus goes on now, wonderful section, this uh, uh, verses uh, 26 through 33, three times in this section, Jesus tells his disciples, have no fear. So let's take a look at this, in, in spite of what he's already told them, uh, right? Uh, he's already given them this, this context in which they're going to, be, going to be operating, but now it's have no fear three times. So verse 26, so have no fear of them. Who's the them? Well, it's the, those who are going to hate them, 
who are going to, uh, you know, be absolutely opposed to them, who are going to malign them, you know, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And Jesus, in effect, is saying that it's all going to come out in the end. In other words, things that are hidden now will be uncovered and will be known. And we can really think of that in in two different ways. First of all, the sin and the rank unbelief that exists back then and down through the ages that sometimes might be covered over and not flaunted, that is going to be uncovered. That is going to be made known. But also, and I think even especially, the good news of forgiveness and triumph over sin, death, and the grave through Jesus Christ, which is hidden in many cases from those who don't want to hear it, who don't want to even uh, entertain it, that will be made known as well. That will be uncovered, especially again on the last day when Christ returns triumphantly. So now verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. It's interesting that several times uh, we think of in the Gospel of Mark, for example, this is, this is a theme, that Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have seen. When he, for example, has done a miracle, uh, don't tell anyone what you have seen. Uh, it just was not his time yet. And here it is just the opposite. We have just the opposite approach. You know, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So do not hold it in. Proclaim it. Shout it out for everyone to receive. And boy, what a, uh, what a great, uh, what great marching orders for the church today. The very same type of thing. We think about those times, perhaps in our own lives, when we have uh, failed to speak out. We have failed to proclaim it on the housetops. And we have kept hidden what Christ has revealed to us, what God has revealed to us. But boy, what great marching orders for our church, especially in this modern day, to proclaim it on the housetops. Don't hold it in. Through every means possible, proclaim that there is forgiveness and there is abundant eternal life through Jesus Christ. Verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can, can destroy both, body and, uh, both soul and body in hell. You know, it's very easy just to glide over that verse, don't fear those who can only kill the body. That's... Uh, Awfully easily said when it's not you who are the you know the person who is in danger of of being killed, uh, of having your body killed, and that's exactly what these disciples eventually would be facing in their lives. Um, but Jesus says, "Don't fear them. All they can do is kill the body." And of course, for the Christian, we know there is a physical bodily resurrection to come when our 
corruptible bodies will be made incorruptible on the day when Christ returns and raises us up, and our mortal bodies will be made immortal on that same day. So Jesus, in effect, says, don't worry about the one that's going to only kill the body. Rather, however, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear the one who will, uh, through his righteous judgment, uh, send you away uh, for an eternal existence apart from uh, the presence of God. And there is both a spiritual and a physical death as well. Then Jesus goes on, and there's a great verse of comfort here. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And actually they were. Uh, there was, it was a uh, currency called a sixteenth of a day's wage, a sixteenth of a denarius. You could get two sparrows for one sixteenth of a day's wage. And the idea here is, you know, how seemingly, in the big scheme of things, unvalued and unimportant these two sparrows are. If you can buy them for both, get them both for a sixteenth of a day's wage. And Jesus goes on to say, though, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. In other words, even as seemingly unimportant as they are, not one of them falls to the ground without the Father's knowledge. He even cares for the lowliest parts of the creation. Uh, verse, uh, next verse here, But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Here, here's again for the third time. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And that's, that's the real point. That this God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere present, is not going to leave you alone, is not going to uh, leave you to fend for yourselves. It's just like we had with Jeremiah. Remember, his comfort came from the fact that God was there present with him. And the same is going to be happening here. Um, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How comforting that is for us, not only as a church, as we think about uh, the great value that God places upon us as his children, but even in our everyday, day-to-day living, that there's nothing that can come into our life of which God is unaware. There's no place we can go where we are somehow suddenly no longer in his presence. There's nothing that can come of which he is seemingly now unable to to help us and to strengthen us and encourage us. And again, that is where Jeremiah found his comfort and his encouragement. That's where these disciples are going to find their comfort and their encouragement And likewise, that's where we find our comfort and encouragement as well. Verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The idea here of believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth, as Paul says, Jesus Christ before men, 
Jesus says, whoever does that, whoever acknowledges, whoever confesses me, and that's more than just Christ, but Christ as Savior, Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior, I also will acknowledge or confess before my Father who is in heaven. So there is that assurance that we all have, that in our heart we believe, with our mouth we confess, and we are saved. And Christ presents us and confesses us to his Father, but the other side equally true. Whoever fails to, um, whoever fails to confess him or recognize him before the Father, so also he, uh, before men, so also he will not confess before the Father. In fact, he will deny him before the Father. And that, that word for deny is the same word in the original Greek language that is used of Peter denying Jesus three times uh, in that courtyard right after Christ's arrest, before the rooster crows, exactly as Christ said he would. Um, you know, when we stop and think about this, what Jesus is in effect saying to these disciples is that your greatest fear should not be suffering uh, for my sake. Your greatest fear should be being abandoned by God for not just for a while, but for an eternity. That should be your greatest fear, your greatest concern. And Jesus reassures them that as, as long as they confess him before men, in other words, as long as with their heart they believe and with their mouth they confess, they are saved. So a, you can see again the great connection between this gospel lesson and the Old Testament lesson. The opposition that sinful humanity has to the truth of God's word and its preaching and proclamation and teaching, and also the great strength and comfort that came, from, came to Jeremiah and would come to these disciples, that God would not abandon them, just the opposite. He would be with them along the way and would fortify and strengthen them as they proclaimed the word that he gave them to proclaim. So with that, now let's go to the Epistle lesson. Many times, unless it is a festival Sunday, the Epistle lessons uh, don't necessarily operate with the same theme or the same thread running through them. That's the case here in Romans chapter 6. Uh, just a little bit of a review before we get started. In the previous chapters uh, in Romans leading up to this point, Paul has uh, clearly demonstrated the devastating results of sin and the utter sinfulness of, of uh, humanity. He has clearly demonstrated that the law is not the way to be made right with God. He instead has clearly demonstrated that it is faith in Jesus Christ alone that makes one righteous, that, that uh, pronounces one to be righteous by God in his presence. In the previous chapter, he has pointed out, and this is in Romans 5, uh, the sharp contrast between Adam and the so-called second Adam, or Jesus Christ, that through the first Adam came sin and death, and through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes life, abundant, eternal life, and the forgiveness of sin. Now, in chapter 6, Paul begins to look at the living of the Christian life. In other words, 
now that I have been pronounced righteous by God, now that all is right between God and me once again as a result of God's working, how do I live now in relationship to God in ways that are pleasing in his sight? I might sometimes refer to this as the living of the sanctified life before God. And while my being made pronounced righteous in God's sight is a one-time instantaneous act uh, in, in, uh, in, in God's grace toward me through faith in Jesus Christ, the living of the sanctified life is a um, lifelong process that begins and hopefully is one of continued growth with the Holy Spirit working in us uh, through God's means of grace to continue to help us grow in our Christian faith and Christian living. Now, let's pick up here. We don't have a lot of time left. Romans 6, we're going to start at verse 12, and we're going to hope to get through verse 23. Let not sin, therefore, that therefore, because everything I've said up until this point is true, therefore, let not sin reign or rule in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You know, we think of that which rules or that which reigns in our body, that which tells us what we should do, that which we obey. And you can sense here this real, this real uh, battle, this internal battle that takes place every day where Satan will, um, as Scripture says, roam around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, will be there at every turn, at every step of the way, to try and entice us to sin. Unfortunately, we know as God's children that we are both at the same time saints who are sinless in the sight of God, not because of anything we've done, but because of the righteousness God has placed upon us by grace through faith in Christ. So we are saints in the sight of God, but at the same time, unfortunately, we know we are sinners who sin daily by thought, word, and deed, who need to repent daily of our sin and not only ask for God's forgiveness, but for his help also in amending our sinful lives. And that's exactly what you get the taste of here. Don't let sin reign or rule in your mortal bodies. Verse 13 do not present your members or parts of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So it's, it's, a, it's a dedicating of our entire being, the members even of our body, not to serve sin and evil and unrighteousness, but rather to sin, serve God and be instruments of his righteousness in the sight of people. I think of Romans 12, uh, verse uh, 1 later on, where Paul talks about presenting our bodies as sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable in his sight, uh, and that that is our worship. Uh, in the sight of God. It's kind of the same thing here. Uh, everything that we are, everything that we have, is now used in God's service, no longer to serve sin. Uh, 
And verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. And again, we pray for the Holy Spirit's help on a daily basis. So sin will have no dominion or no no control, no ruling authority over us. Um, we are no longer under the law. A couple ways that can be taken. We're no longer certainly under the curse of the law in terms of its punishment of sin and guilt. And we're no longer under the law in the sense that we are in an exercise of futility trying to live according to the law in order to try and please God. God has already bestowed upon us righteousness and forgiveness apart from the law, as Paul has said a few chapters earlier. But we are under grace. We are under, we live under God's undeserved, unmerited love for us in Jesus Christ. Now, going on, uh, verse 16. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Now, Paul is, actually, this is the way Paul started chapter 6. Should we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Uh, kind of a real twisted uh, logic. You know, should I, should I sin all the more so that God has more and more opportunities to exercise his grace? Well, that would, be a, that would be an argument that is definitely coming from the sinful nature. There's no question. It's not coming from uh, the righteous nature uh, whatsoever. And Paul says, of course not. Uh, next verse, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Notice the divide here. There's no in-between ground, there's no gray area, there's no sort of, you know, middle, middle ground, median here. You're either a slave of righteousness or you're a slave of sin and death. And that which you obey is that which you serve in your life. And we pray again daily for the opportunity to be um, the, the slaves or the servants of our gracious God. Verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And of course, all of that has happened as a result of the Spirit's working in those whom Paul was addressing in Rome and all Christians. It is the Spirit. You know, as Luther says in his explanation of the third article, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. It is nothing that we have done. It is nothing that we bring to the table. It is the Spirit who has worked in us through God's word, and water and word, in most cases, I dare say, those who are listening today, that has resulted in us being obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed, again, by the work of the Spirit, that we've been set free from sin. Sin no longer has us enslaved, not only temporarily, but eternally. We've been freed from that. 
and we have become slaves or servants of righteousness. Going on, verse uh, 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. So Paul's you know, speaking about slaves and masters and obedience and that which we serve. He's using those images to try and teach them about this, this great divide uh, between sin and righteousness in their bodies. For just as you were once presented, you, you, I'm sorry, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Leading, you know, present, again, as we we talked about earlier, present your members, all parts of your body, your intellect, everything you have and exist and consist of, present that all to be as being members and slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, Sanctification is something that we might say is is being holy, is being it is being set apart for God's use. Uh, sometimes we use the phrase consecrated uh, in much the same way that there is this ever growing life of of sanctification that God leads us in, and we follow the Spirit's working in us. Okay, final paragraph here. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Yeah, it was, again, the, the great divide between the two. We were slaves to sin. Sin determined what we did, when we did it, how we did it, where we were going to spend eternity. And we were free, Paul says here, with regard to righteousness. We had nothing to do with righteousness, actually. Verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. Paul says, in other words, what good did all of that unrighteousness and slavery to sin do? And now you are ashamed of it. And I, you know, you think of people that, in, in whom God has brought about a great change in their life through the Spirit's working, and they, there are people who will look back on the things that they did the way they used to live, and they will even say, I am completely ashamed of the way that I used to live before God worked in me and called me to faith in Jesus Christ. I can't believe that I lived that way. I can't believe that that was my lifestyle. Um, And yet, uh, that's when it's always time to say that absolutely all of that sin and all of that evil has been taken away by God through faith in Jesus Christ as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist says, and uh, that God will forgive our iniquity and remember our sin no more. It is completely wiped out, completely taken away, and now we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. But as Paul points out here, what good did all of that sin and all of that unrighteousness get you in the end? You're, you're nothing but ashamed of it now. Going on. For the end of those things is death. And when the Bible speaks of death here, it's not only speaking of the stopping of brain waves and the stopping of a pulse, but it's speaking of a spiritual death, being set apart from God and his righteousness and his, uh, his uh, gracious presence for an eternity. Now, uh, finishing up, But now that you have been set free from sin, 
and, and free from its curse, its dominion, its hold on us, and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to, here's this word again, sanctification. So the result of living uh, apart from sin now and in God's grace is that the fruit that we get, the results that we get, leads to sanctification or leads to holiness. And its end is, its, its goal is eternal life. And here's a great verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice here the, the, the payout, the wage, the, the, the pay at the end of the day, you might say, for sin is death. And again, that's not just a physical death, but a spiritual death as well, eternally apart from God. So that's, that's the end, that's the, that's the uh, benefit, you might say, of sin, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice there it is not, he, Paul does not say, for the wages of sin is death, but the wages of keeping the law, no, that's not what he says. He says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus. He is the source of that eternal life. And it is in and through him that we receive that eternal life. And again, it is a free gift. It is nothing that we are asked to try to strive to achieve or, or accomplish in our life. In fact, we never could. It would be a futile effort. Thanks be to God, it is given to us as a free gift. So, I hope this time in God's Word has been helpful for you. Um, these lessons will again be the lessons that uh, most Lutheran churches uh, will be hearing, and many others as well, on Sunday, June 21, 2020. And I would be remiss if I didn't close also by saying a very happy and blessed Father's Day to all of our dads out there, as June 21 is Father's Day in our nation as well. Let's close then with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you. Amen.